Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week we're looking at maker culture in Sydney and following the fisher's journey. But first up, here's the news. National Security Inquiry requires time travel. The Australian government has run a national security inquiry inviting the public over the last year to make democratic submissions on the proposal that ASIO and the Australian Federal Police wish to set up a data retention scheme, whereby all phone and internet companies in Australia would be required to keep data on who you called and when and where from, as well as who you sent email to and the subject lines, but not the content, at least not for yet, the metadata. It turns out that for the last 11 years, Telstra have been illegally spying on Australians for a foreign power, the very definition of treason. Online news publisher Crikey broke the story that Telstra, the phone and internet company that was once the completely government-owned monopoly provider for Australia, has been storing all of the phone calls, all of the emails and all of the web traffic of all Australians, content and metadata, so that the American Federal Police, the FBI, can access them at will without any warrants or oversight, because we're foreigners. This is in direct violation of Australian privacy laws that require either a warrant or the consent of the person whose information is being used for purposes other than those to which they originally agreed. Ironically, the National Security Inquiry concluded that the Attorney General, ASIO and the Australian Federal Police would be acting unreasonably and violating Australians' human rights if they did exactly what they've been doing for the last 11 years in secret. They'd need a time machine to implement their recommendations. Telstra executives, after Crikey broke the story, have tried to say that in order to have a cable that lands in America for internet and phone calls, they needed to comply with American domestic laws, and somehow this excuses them from breaking Australian domestic laws. Not only have Telstra betrayed the Australian people, but they've also compromised the privacy and sovereignty of other Asian nations, whose telecommunications cables they now control. The WikiLeaks party is contesting the Senate in the upcoming elections, and will be suing Telstra for violating their members' privacy as protected by Australian law. Australians are now looking to move all their cloud services to Australia, and to assume that no emails or phone calls are private. This week, we're looking at maker culture. Dorkbot and the exciting announcement that the Powerhouse Museum will be holding a Sydney mini maker fair on November 24th, 2013. Daniel Green is a tutor within ThinkSpace, the learning and technologies division of the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. He wears many hats and has many fingers in many pies. He's project officer for the Sydney mini maker fair, 
and organised a meeting for people who want to participate and show off their projects. I attended and asked him to explain what the Mini Maker Fair is. What's a maker? Oh, that's the $64,000 question. So there are all kinds of people who do all kinds of things. There are, there are cheese makers, there are people who use Arduinos, there are people who you know, work in community uh, music studios producing producing music for low socioeconomic background uh, communities and particularly young people and there are also you know we, I met a, a balloonist today who's fully intending on on having a hot air balloon within the museum but the actual answer to the question the maker movement I mean there's always been tinkerers there's always been people who sort of sit at home and kind of work on a passion project that can have an entrepreneurial output what makes a maker is that those people as opposed to being inwardly focused are, are much more open not only about their processes the the words transparency of process is something that's very key and what i believe a maker is and also the fact that they're globally connected through well through the internet I think that's what makes a maker, not necessarily what a maker is. That's I that's think that's my answer to your question. No, that's a, that's an excellent answer. And so a mini maker fair mm-hmm. with an E on the end. With an E. Uh, with an E and a capital F. So Make Magazine, which is a publication that comes from the United States, formerly of O'Reilly Publishing, but now is its own thing. They organise these kind of uh, large-scale meetups, which they call Make a Fair with an E. And those are, are quite huge events. They can span multiple days, can take up you know, a, an area the size of, say, Sydney showground in terms of the kind of spaces and things that happen. A mini Make a Fair is not only a much smaller-scale event, it involves less people, uh, less actual on-the-ground activities, but it's also independently run. The analogue is is a mini maker fair is to a maker fair as TEDx is to TED. It's an independently run version of a much larger event. And so the Powerhouse Museum is putting this on when? Our mini maker fair will be on Sunday, November the 24th of this year. So it'll only be a one-day event, but we're aiming to have it span across the entire museum. So it's a very big and ambitious project for us. And what sort of making people do you think you're going to get? What sort of things would people look forward to seeing on the day? That That's also a really good question. We want to keep things really, really broad, but just today, just from having a, a public meeting, you know, we've had people talk about jet engines, um, other people talking about, you know, whether or not it's possible to deploy an electromagnetic pulse, you know, but we also, like I say, we want to involve people who work in community organisations producing music for young people. Uh, we want to involve uh, people who produce foodstuffs, uh, a number, a much larger movement than I could ever have anticipated of people who make preserves in their garages and sell them online and to cafes and restaurants, all that have their own challenges. And all kinds of people who work with, with technology, you know, Raspberry Pis, Arduinos, which, which all sound very zeitgeisty, but that's really where the most interesting and innovative use of, of kind of homebrew 
no hacking, for lack of a better word, is kind of taking place. So we will, of course, and you know, 3D printing and um, you know, CNC manufacturing, like all of that, we aim to have have very present. But we also don't want to limit ourselves. We want it to be quite open and far-reaching and and surprise people. So if people have ideas that they'd like to bring along, when can they apply and where should they apply? The Powerhouse Museum's website, which is simply one word or lowercase, uh, powerhousemuseum.com, we are aiming to have application forms available on by September the 1st, uh, which is a Sunday, uh, but uh, and then they'll, the application call will be open for a one-month period between September the 1st and September the 30th. And then people will hear back with us by mid-October, and then the event will happen at the end of November on the 24th. And we really do encourage, although we are a, a large institution and with all the trappings that kind of may present to people or any kind of limitations, we really do want people to throw at us you know, their, their ideas of what, what they would like to do and then it becomes our job to see how best we can facilitate that or what is possible. So come at us and for those people who won't be able to get to sydney i believe you're live streaming that's something we're currently working on we don't know exactly how that's going to go but we definitely will have an online presence particularly through through social media but uh in terms of some events being live stream or, or the others we know it's possible within the infrastructure of the museum but how that will work on the day it's very tbc is there anything further you'd like to add before we finish we really do encourage people to get in contact with us with any kinds of questions. We have an email address at Sydney Mini Maker Fair at phm.gov.au. Uh, any kinds of questions about the application process, and and I can't stress enough if you if you want it to happen, just ask the question, and we'll see what we can do. We can't promise everything. That's probably something I really do need to to say from the outset, but. You know, we want this to happen. We want this to be successful. We want to do more of them. So, you know, this is just a a starting point for us. Well, Daniel Green, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. That was Daniel Green, Project Officer for the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, coming up on November 24th, 2013 at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. You can find out more by sending email to Fair at phm.gov.au. The best place to get a taste of the kinds of projects you might find at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair is to visit Dorkbot Sydney, People Doing Strange Things with Electricity, a collective of technological artists, people who make cool stuff and show it off every month. I visited Dorkbot and spoke with Adam Farrow Palmer. He's a maker currently unemployed, who presents the Point Breaks show on Saturdays at midnight on the FBI community radio station, playing fun dance music. He came to Dorkbot to show the electronic shirt he's made. You've come here tonight and you've demonstrated some electronic clothing. Yeah, I, um, I've, I've made a few electronics projects and then I've got into sewing as well and I thought why not combine them and I looked into wearable electronics, so a lot of people doing soft circuits and um, a lot of things um, using uh, like clothes as, as the conduit and a lot of people doing great stuff in theatre um, making amazing things uh, but I made something made for a, a weekend music festival which is a shirt with a built-in VU meter 
Um, so at the top volume, the full all LEDs lit up, and when it's quiet or halfway, there are fewer LEDs lit up. That's amazing. So you use conductive thread? Yeah, I got I got what's essentially very thin wire, but um, it's wrapped around each other to make it quite strong. So I couldn't break it with my fingers, unlike like most thread. Um, and I just sew sew with it like normal thread, and also treat it just like a regular wire. But it's not insulated, so um, it, uh, you can't do it for too far because the um, voltage will drop, or the resistance will go up. I'm not very uh, experienced in the, <laughs> the technical bits, so it does work though. So experienced enough to make it work, but not to fully understand or maybe all the concepts I was working with. And it, you've programmed it? Yeah, I used Arduino. Um, I, used, I thought in theory a microphone, high, high voltage, um, brighter lights, but when you have nearly 100 lights, it doesn't work like that anymore. So I, I made a simple program using other people's scripts in, in Arduino, combining a few together, Frankenstein um, sketch uh, and it takes uh, data from a microphone and then it says if the data is um, at the top of the range then all the lights light up in the segments. If the data is in the middle then half the lights will light up and also with a, a little pot so if it's um, quieter then I can make it so the number is expanded and they'll still get a full range of light motion even with conversation and if there's loud music playing I can turn it down a bit and it'll still get a full range of light motion. And you've sewn your lights onto a shirt with a graph on it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I went to Vinnie's and found a shirt that um, has these little cubes all over the whole thing. It's quite a geometric design and that made it very easy to line up all the LEDs as I sewed them in. And uh, I should also mention I didn't buy the wearable clothes, I didn't buy proper fabric um, bits. I instead went the cheapskate route and bought regular LEDs, regular resistors and just wound up all the leads into little uh, circles that I could sew onto. It took a long time, a very long time. A few e-books, a uh, few audiobooks there I went through. Is any of this project online where people can see it or is that something they'll need to look to in the future? I'm going to put something on Instructables that, that I've uh, been procrastinating doing that. But yeah, I'll put something on with, with my sketch, which hopefully someone can improve as well as the, all the designs and everything I did. But you'll have to watch this space for that. Awesome. Adam Farapama, thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. And to unpack some of the techno jargon, you probably knew that an LED is a light-emitting diode, maybe that a VU meter is a volume unit meter, which measures how loud music is as a rising bar of lights. Arduino is a hobbyist electronics controller system. A pot is a potentiometer or a variable resistor, which is basically a dial that you can twist to turn things up or down. For our listeners outside Australia, Vinnie's is a second-hand shop run by the St Vincent de Paul charity. Ian Chalmers works on software and infrastructure for Moore's Cloud. He was part of the Moore's Cloud team that came to demonstrate at Dorkbot the Moore's Cloud Festival, a string of networked computer-controlled lights. So the Moore's Cloud is a full Linux computer in a set of Christmas lights, um, and there's a whole bunch of software that runs on it, including a Wi-Fi stack and an abstraction layer that knows about many different sorts of internet connected lights including the christmas tree lights we call holiday and so this is fully controllable and from outside the net or even from a device that you buy with it uh, it's controllable from any html5 browser on any device so smartphones tablets laptops desktop computers um, there's a web service that you can subscribe to that will let you control them from outside your network. There's some security implications of having your Christmas tree lights talk to the public internet. Um, so there's some fairly stringent requirements that we've got on ourselves to make sure that we don't do that in a way that is a problem. And what sort of uses will people, 
I mean, obviously Christmas lights will be Christmas lights, but people can do some very complex things with Christmas lights. And if they're internet present and configurable, what will people do? That remains to be seen. Um, there are some people that have got some really exciting ideas about it. And one of the obvious use cases is the large scale house Christmas tree light things. Um, collections of these can obviously be synchronised to each other. There's a really simple JSON API, REST API, that you can talk to them and just set each individual LED in as many of these things as you've got to whatever colour you want. Um, uh, I've got some ideas about things like an iPhone app using the camera on the iPhone that can, you just randomly drape strings of these things everywhere um, and then auto-locate them in space with the iPhone camera, um, potentially in three dimensions. If you've got them in a three-dimensional space, you can move the camera around, use the accelerometers and the GPS to say, where am I looking at it from and which direction? And then I can locate each, because you can flash the pixels with a code that the camera can recognize the individual ones. And then you can build a map of where every single LED is in space and then do three-dimensional animations on that sort of stuff. Or two-dimensional if you just drape them off the front of your house or something. That sounds amazing. I think I need to see that in action. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting the opportunity to play with, you know, 10 of these all at the same time, which will give you 500 pixels to play with. So, so are the holiday lights on sale right now? Uh, they're on pre-sale. Um, we're uh, struggling very hard with our manufacturing partners to get them ready to ship by 1st of November. Um, and Keen's pulling more hair out than I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're going to make that date, yeah. So pre-order them at moorscloud.com. <laughs> Excellent. Ian Chalmers, thank you very much. No problem, thanks. That was Ian Chalmers, asking you to imagine draping your house in 3D animated festival lights you can interact with. You can find out more about Moore's Cloud at moorscloud.com. Remember the remote control cockroaches? Now they're available in kit form. Manuel Betancourt is an engineer who develops software for mobile phones. He's been making cockroach and cricket legs twitch to music for Dorkbot, based on projects sold by Backyard Brains, an American company that makes neuroscience project kits. So, Manuel, we're here at Dorkbot, and you've got a project involving electricity and cockroach legs. Yes, it's a pretty interesting project from some neuroscience guys from the US. So I've I work a lot with different uh, neurofeedback devices, electroencephalogram, electrocardiograms. Um, I'm actually an electronics engineer, but I work uh, developing software for mobiles, uh, iPhone, Android. So um, I did this project uh, with these friends uh, from, from the US that is uh, to measure the, the action potential of the neurons in the cockroach leg. So you can connect two electrodes to the, to the leg and then see the response on real time. And then you can feed it electricity and it will move. You can put some music, it will move. Right now they have a very nice project that is a control remote cockroach. That is, will be my next experiment. So you put the, the two electrodes on the actual antennas of the cockroach. So you can make it turn left, right. So I am looking forward into integrating that with some robotics and uh, a little uh, bit of an artist experiment. So. so your current project with the cockroach legs or, or your recent project, did that involve the legs still being on the cockroaches? No, you have to take the leg off the cockroach. Like maybe you have maybe four hours 
that all the neurons in the leg are still alive after that they, they start degrading but basically you have to, to rip off the leg and like some people get sad but like the, the leg might grow again for cockroach for crickets but you know you have so much cockroaches here in Sydney that <laughs> I think it's not a, a big problem. <laughs> Do you have any videos of, of this work that people could see online? Are there any recordings? Definitely. The official site is uh, Backyard Science. So you can go to backyardscience.com and see all the experiments with the cockroaches. And this is basically neuroscience experiments that run for tens of thousands of dollars. But this uh, group made it so cheap, open source. And you can basically do an experiment that costs tens of thousands of dollars for a hundred bucks. That's amazing. So they go to backyardscience.com to look at what you've done. And what about the upcoming project with the remote control cockroach? Oh, is there as well? Is there as well? Yes. Awesome. Well, Manuel, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Glad to meet you. That was Manuel Bettercourt. You can find out more at backyardbrains.com and I'll embed the cockroach beatbox and remote control kits on diffusionradio.com. And yes, cockroaches can grow their legs back when they next molt their exoskeleton to grow a new one, unless they're too old for any new molts. Is it cool or cruel to harvest cockroach legs in the name of science? Write your answer on the Diffusion Science Radio Facebook page and tell us what you think. You can find out more about the next Dorkbot Sydney event at dorkbotsyd syd.boztech.net. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on www.diffusionradio.com. And now a talk from the UTS Science Faculty 3-Minute Thesis Competition. Students have 3 minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide for cash prizes and a chance at the university and national competitions. Here's Gwenaille Cadu with a fish journey, where, when, and why. Well, wild fish provide um, major food protein for the world population. And fishing um, provides live food for many um, other people on, the, on Earth. And um, fisheries are under threats and the fish stocks are also affected by climate change and habitat degradation. And there's an urge to a need to manage these fish stocks. And um, um, yeah, so in order to manage efficiently a fish stock, uh, we need to know where the fish have been, where the fish moving, and why the fish are moving. And um, that's the topic of my PhD research. So basically what I'm doing, I'm looking at the fish movements and try to find out why they move and where they move. In order to do that, I'm using two um, techniques. The first one is acoustic telemetry. As a keen fisherman, um, had to become a um, fish surgeon to in, in order to implant this transmitter in, in the fish. And uh, with this transmitter, can it emits a, a code that can be detected, and I can track individually each fish. So I can know where the fish have been and uh, why it's moving, because I also record environmental factors such as temperature, salinity, and also the habitat where the fish have been. So with this information, I go through models and uh, try to link these movements with these factors and to try to find out which are the main drivers. 
The second technique I'm using is based on the oil leaf. And the oil leaf is a structure you can find at the head of the fish. And um, this structure has the particularity to grow um, all during the life of the fish, during the whole life of the fish. And as a tree, when you chop a tree, you can see these concentric rings, and they call growth rings. And the similar, similar fashion, um, the oil leaf um, had these rings. And the growth rings can be used to edge the fish. And um, by using that, so how is it related to my research, um, investigating the fish movements? Well, these rings incorporate the elements of the water where the fish have been living in. So basically, for each environment, the water composition will change. So I can identify uh, which, where the fish have been and where it has been. And I can do that for the whole life of the fish. From the core, near the core, that's a juvenile habitat. And from to the edge, that's a um, current habitat. So, so far, my research provided information for the fisheries. And um, the main drivers are identified will help to protect, conserve, and manage these fisheries. Thank you very much. So what's the longest distance one of the old fish is? 600 kilometers. 600, 600 kilometers. Outwards or up and down the coast? Up the coast so far. I'm hoping to get it back at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> That was Gwenao Kadir with his three-minute thesis at the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about the three-minute thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. And like our Facebook page and maybe leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.